You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. While the goal of every actor is to perform, our day-to-day job is actually auditioning. As we continue Black History Month here on the podcast, Adrian Walker from The Lion King on Broadway joins me for a very open and candid conversation about being in such an iconic show and the added questions she brings into the audition room. When I'm called in for a leading lady or for her best friend or something like that, I am curious why, because we haven't moved far enough in the casting process for that question to not come up. This is Why I'll Never Make It, an honest look at the realities of a career in the arts. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer for almost 30 years, who knows firsthand the ups and downs we all face. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can sign up for the monthly newsletter and receive a free copy of the new ebook, Creative Wisdom, a collection of quotes and insights from previous guests of this podcast. That and much more can be found at whyillnevermakeit.com. Since the pandemic shut down all live stage productions here in New York, actors, directors, and producers have gone online in an effort to keep theater going. And one such presentation in December 2020 was the New Works Virtual Festival, a collection of plays and screenplays read by actors. And that's where I met today's guest, Adrienne Walker. She played my wife in a short one act called Now You See Me, Now You Don't. I've included a link to that production in the show notes. Now, although our time together was short in that virtual setting, Adrian was very natural in the role and made an impression on me. So I'm very grateful that she accepted my invitation to come on the podcast. As I mentioned in the opening for part one of our conversation, we touch on some delicate but very important issues. Auditioning as a black actress and the need for authentic black voices in theater. But we start off talking about The Lion King, when it and Broadway are coming back, the show's history both culturally and theatrically, and the pressures she faced in taking on the role of Nala. All right, Adrian, it is so great to have you. So great to see you again and have you here on the podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to sit down with you and chat a bit. And, you know, we met from afar and now we're talking again. So this is really cool. The world is getting smaller, right? Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. And that that festival that we did, I mean, we kind of just met, hi, how you doing? And then went into the reading. So it wasn't really much chance to get to know everybody. 
Absolutely. I guess that's just the structure because they cast like, I think like 40 different plays or. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was part of the the selection committee. So we were reading oh, okay. a bunch of different plays and choosing this one or choosing that one. And uh, yeah, there, there was a lot to go through. And then, yeah, I mean, what they put together was kind of amazing with uh, with that festival. So it was, uh, I, I, I was impressed with the turn because we don't know, we're just reading on Zoom and, but then they actually turned it into a nice little production. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It was fun. I actually, I did too. And that was my favorite of the two. It felt, it felt good. Since 2016 though, you've been in one of the biggest Broadway shows that that's around and has been around for, for a long time with the Lion King. And you've been a part of it for about four or five years now. What do you think has contributed to the show's longevity and its popularity with audiences? I think that with The Lion King, it's definitely um, a story that translates over different cultures and different societies. And that's why they've been able to put it over, put it up in different countries all around the world. And I think the longevity of it is just, I feel like it's the story, but I also feel like it's Julie Taymor's vision and her direction. You know, they brought her on. She's not your typical musical theater director in any way. And she was very firm in her beliefs and what she wanted and her vision for the show. And I think when you give someone creative license like that, especially when they're coming with a fresh view and a fresh insight, uh, then you allow them a chance to either flourish or flop. And this was a time for her vision to flourish. And I think because it's so beautiful, the puppetry and the, the uh, Garth Fagan's choreography and, and just everything and the music, the South African music, it all works in a way where I think, and when they were putting it together in 1996, 1997, that they were just creative machines and that kind of speaks to the longevity of it, that, that because they were, their, their creativity was able to flourish, we're able to see it and people are able to enjoy it and love it. Sometimes when I look at musical theater, um, especially when it gets on that commercial level, I feel like uh, everyone's license to be creative is not always um, free. Yeah, people it's, aren't it's, it's always- It's diminished a bit, yeah. Yeah, because the money, because of the money and the risk, and you know, is this going to be mainstream? Are people going to hate it? Are we going to? You know, are we wasting funds? And you know, all of that fear comes into play. And um, I don't know what was going on in in ninety six and ninety seven when they were creating this, and before that when they were creating it. But I feel like there were some strong voices in the process that said, "No, it must be this way. No, I'm standing for this direction. I, I understand that you may be fearful, or you may feel like this isn't going to work." but I'm willing to take the risk. Will you join me in that? And I think that that's powerful. And I, I want to see more of that in musical theater. I want to see people take more risks because um, it's we're breaking out into song. Why play it safe? That's already a very strange <laughs> right. thing, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 And, and you're portraying animals, you know, so you're yeah. already, you know, there's, there's already, you're kind of regressing back to your childhood where it's like, be a tree, be a cat, be a, you know, you know, those, those little skits we used to do as children. And I think you're so right that 
the yes the the story appeals to to anyone who can come you know anyone can relate to some character on stage but it is that presentation this the spectacle of that the uniqueness of the of the choreography of the costuming of the puppetry that really adds to it and for you most of your roles have been you know where you're portraying an, an actual person a character and the costuming is just part of that character whereas in lion king the costuming it, it almost kind of takes over and is is the character. You know, there, there's a lot of puppetry. There's a lot of motion that the masks or things can do. Does that help or impede the acting process when you're starting out? Oh, my goodness. When you're starting out, it definitely impedes. It's... Um... For me, it was very uncomfortable. I actually was speaking with Jelani Remy, who was um, Simba for quite some time and the first Simba I ever worked with. And he, his friend was telling him that he is kinetically intelligent, you know, that he, he understands his body. He knows how to con uh, communicate with his body. I am not kinetically intelligent. <laughs> so uh, being taught the Javanese style and Balinese style that they use in the choreography for Lion King, was somewhat overwhelming. And then trying to pair it with um, whatever motivation my character had in that moment or singing was just so overwhelming. And they know this, the, the creative team and the production team, they, they, they know. So when you come in and the resident director's there and the resident uh, dance director's there and they're, they're teaching you everything, they're like giving you just little crumbs at a time because they know that it's like, whoa, what is happening? Um, my body doesn't move this way naturally. How do I make this seem natural and comfortable? And how do I give it direction when you're not kinetically intelligent like Jelani. For Jelani, it's he's like, oh, this is my lane, you know? He's like moving around. And there were times when the rock didn't rise and Jelani had to create uh, this beautiful final Busa moment. And he just walked around the stage and it looked as if that was how the show was supposed to end, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you, just, you have to love those actors who can take a moment that is not scripted and turn it into something beautiful. Oh yes, yes, he's 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 so good at that. But um, yeah, I did find it to be difficult. I probably will discover that again when the doors open again and we're back in rehearsal and we're figuring out how to move our bodies again. I, I'm curious what it will feel like to be out of the show for over a year and do these movements again. Will it come right back or will I be terrified again for four weeks? Uh, I don't know. So there has been no no plans to uh, to delay Lion King beyond you know in, anything else with, with Broadway. It's it's set to come back whenever it comes back. Correct. Oh yeah, the producers have been really firm with that. Uh, they've met with us a couple of times to talk about various things. But when that comes up, hey, you know, are you going to make us audition again, or is everyone's contract safe? You know, those kinds of questions. They've put everyone at peace and said, no one will have to re-audition. We'll do a really nice, comfortable amount of time for rehearsal. They never really said any concrete <laughs> right. time. What is comfortable, yes. Yeah, what is comfortable? Because when I, I left Lion King briefly to go do Kiss Me Kate, and when I came back to the Lion King, I had two hours of rehearsal, watched act two, and I was back in the next day. So... Did it feel like getting on a bike again or was there a bit of, uh, what am I doing? Some of it felt like getting on a bike, other parts not so much because there's such a, a stamina 
that I acquired in doing the show with, you know, you're talking about the costumes and putting that on and the, the corset is beaded and it's heavy and it's very restrictive. And so when you're doing the show, you work up stamina to breathe and to sing through that. When you're not doing the show, you know, I'm not a runner. I have terrible <laughs> knees. So building up stamina like that, it really only comes with doing the show. So that that kind of hit me like a brick wall. You know, I'm like out there running and singing and belting. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't breathe, but I have to pretend like I can, <laughs> you know, so. Coming into a show with such a long history, did you feel any pressure or responsibility to perform Nala in a certain way? Oh, yes. I felt a ton of pressure and not so much from the, the folks teaching me the show, I, I, I put a lot of pressure on myself just in general. And it's something I am working on. I've had a lot of time to sit with myself and sit with my flaws during 2020 and now this year. So um, it's something I'm working through, but I think because, uh, you know, Heather Headley was the first Nala and then you've got Renee Elise Goldsberry is one of the previous Nalas. And it's just, you know, such a rich history of, the character and who's portrayed the character. I had one of those, are you sure you want me? What moments, you know, when they first hired me and then wanting to prove them right, wanting to prove to them, well, you made the right decision. I'm going to show you that I can do this, that I can handle this. So yeah, that was a battle. And then something clicked and I just thought, I think I'm doing a good job and I need to accept that I'm doing a good job and have peace with that and be happy mm. and really start enjoying this experience because it's going to be gone. And I'm going to look back and think, wow, did I ever enjoy it? Or did I just beat myself up the whole time? Oh, yeah. Th yeah. That's very interesting. There, there, there always has to come that moment in every show that we're doing where, where, where that confidence, where that surety kicks in. And we're like, you know what? I am doing a good job. I can do this. And, and I think that's when we can really take off in a role. And mm -hmm. was there a particular moment, maybe with the, with the director or just yours, yourself, that, that that started to really click in for you? I think it happened in different moments or segments because the show is, you know, there's the acting, which I felt I felt came natural, natural to me. I felt very connected with Nala and her motivations and her intentions and what she really wanted. I felt connected with that. Then there was the singing, but singing with the physicality and the, the corset and the costumes and everything. And then there was the, the physicality and the movement. So I felt growth in different parts of, of, of those, those three things. So mm. I would have moments of feeling like I had an acting breakthrough and I'm like, yes, or I'd have moments where I felt like, oh, I finally understand the Balinese movement, you know, or I know how to make this happen. And then I'd have vocal breakthroughs and then vocal plateaus and dips, you know. So it 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 ebbed and flowed. It was never a like like a peak of feeling great all the time. I'd have breakthroughs and I'd sail on that breakthrough and then I'd have a setback or I remember the first time during the Nala and Simba fight where I ran, this was actually the most terrifying moment of the show for me. And hopefully I can overcome that when I go back. But uh, there's a moment in uh, act two where, um, you know, in the film where Nala and Simba see each other for the first time, but before they know who they are, they fight. Well, in the Broadway show, Nala comes out 
like a bat out of hell and like leaps on Simba. And that kind of movement for someone like me who has a classical vocal background, who doesn't run and jump on anybody anywhere, <laughs> uh, was terrifying. So, um, and it's a trust leap. You run full speed and you leap in the air and Simba is going to catch you. That is the, it's a huge trust leap. So you have to trust your partner and you have to trust just all of it that they've got you and that you, you know, that it's going to be a good outcome. And so for me, uh, because I'm not a dancer, I think that that was the biggest hurdle, <laughs> literally, to just <laughs> yeah. jump and trust that he's got me and jump without fear because the fear was keeping me from jumping high enough. And the fear was keeping me from letting go and jumping in a, a, a way where we didn't collide but you want the appearance to look like we've collided, but you don't want the impact of a collision on, you know, your fellow Simba. So I remember the first time I ever ran, jumped, and he caught me and it felt like butter. And I was like, that's what it is. You know, it's like a <laughs> huge breakthrough moment. I was like, so it is possible, you know? Right, right. And then it's um, a matter of doing that every day, eight, eight times a week. Yeah. 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 Was, was that fear mostly of your own self and ability or was it also fear of, is he going to catch you? Well, to be fair, he shall remain nameless, but one of the Simpas was joking that in another company uh, during a put-in, he did not catch Anala. And I wish he had never told me that story because it right. just- Don't put that in your head. <laughs> I was- done after that, you know, like done. And I, so that, that messed me up. And then th we had had a rehearsal where I had fallen and, you know, so things do happen, but here's, here's the gag is like, okay, you fall, but guess what? You're fine. You know? So yeah. I need, I still needed to get past that. Even if he doesn't catch me or even if something goes wrong, I'm not going to die. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Now you had mentioned that you took a break from Lion King to do mm -hmm. Kiss Me Kate. And, and I wanted to ask about that because, you know, a lot of us actors, we're happy just to get that one Broadway show finally. And yet you booked a second one while still doing Lion King. So how did that process work of being a part of one company while auditioning for another? I, um, I think it had a lot to do with me needing a creative break and hoping to hook a fish somewhere. And so um, my agent had been sending me on a few auditions just to see what was out there. And um, I went in for uh, Kiss Me Kate. And it's so funny because what they asked me to do in the audition, I was like, there's no way I'm gonna book this. They don't know me from Adam, you know, that whole like, why me moment. And so all they had me do was sing a little bit of another open and another show. And it isn't, it isn't even the version that made it into the show. It's, it was uh, more legit, you know, more classical. You know, you just go up to a high A at the end and that was the end. And in my initial audition, I, uh, I had a little cheat sheet of the lyrics because I always get nervous when a song is very fast and it goes from yeah. lyric to lyric, especially in a, an audition, you, people are staring at you. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to mess up, you know, and then I'm going to be lost. So I, I had a little cheat sheet. And didn't look at it. So, of course, I went off singing other lyrics. And then I was like, I'm so sorry. I have a cheat sheet. And I didn't even bother using it or something like that. I said, and they laughed. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe I've got them a little bit. Maybe they like me a little bit. Let's try this again. <laughs> so then I sang it again. And they said, thank you so much. And I was like, all right. You know, there was no scenes or anything. So I left. And then my agent 
called me and said, hey, can you come back on Wednesday morning at 10? And I was like, ooh, yeah, okay, I could do that. And so um, I woke up that morning and I uh, went to the park. I live in Brooklyn, so I went to Prospect Park and I just walked around and sang in the park to warm up because I, I couldn't warm up in my building that early and I wanted to be able to make sure that A at the end was nice. And so uh, got ready. Uh, showed up at the audition and uh, sang for them. And I, I think the only reason they wanted to see me one more time is because Warren Carlisle wasn't at the first audition and right. he wanted to you know, see everybody as well. Did that. And then Scott Ellis got up and gave me a hug. And I was like, oh, that was nice. And then a couple of days later, my agent said uh, they would they would like to to hire you for Hattie. Um, and they're giving you four weeks to speak to Lion King and work it out and see if they'll let you go. Because I still had when my Kiss Me Kate contract would have started, I still had six months left on my Lion King contract. So they would have had to, you know, find someone. And so I uh, went to company, uh, uh, company management and they said, hey, look, this is great. We love this for you. Uh, let us make sure that we can find another Nala to replace you before we say yes. And so they went searching for uh, for uh, Nala's who were available, who had already, already knew the show and could just come in. They already had a costume for them, that sort of thing. Yeah, that makes and sense, yeah. Yeah. And Cindy Winters answered the call. And so I was able to leave. And when I left, yeah, I remember John Stefanik, who's the resident director at The Lion King. He came up to me and he was like, well, um, you know, just between you and me, we're, we're, we're definitely going to hire you back for it. We're going to renew your contract. But but what if Kiss Me Kate extends? You know, what, what's going to happen then? And I was like, well, they're telling us, you know, it's a for sure closing date. And he's like, well, you never know. You know, we, you know, it's just like, I, I think it'd be all right, John, don't worry. <laughs> and so um, I, I, I can't, I still can't believe it that I was able to just bounce from another show into Kiss Me Kate and then go back into The Lion King, you know, and everyone was okay with it. So it, it felt really good. You know, sometimes it could, it could be scary to ask your employer, Hey, can I leave for a little bit? And, right. You know, right. Because, because you do not want to mess up, you know, your, your turn with Lion King, you know, yeah. because that, that show is going to obviously keep going. Kiss me. Kate has a limited run. So yeah, you don't want to mess yeah. up your opportunities with Lion King. It sounds like to me, especially when I sat down and talked with John about it, that they want their actors, especially when their actors have been there for a while, they want them to be fresh and if leaving for a bit and coming back uh, makes them renewed, makes them feel renewed and, and more fresh to do the job, then they're open to it as long as, you know, they're covered as well. And so I assume you were gone for what, like three or four months then for Lion King? I was gone for just over six months. So oh, I, it was six months. Okay. It was. Yeah. I left Lion King, I think just before New Year's Eve. And then I started Kiss Me Kate January 2nd and I was back in the Lion King by um, actually they gave me two weeks in between. I needed a break because I only had two days off between the two shows. And when I finished Kiss Me Kate, I, I, I really needed a break. I needed a vocal break. My voice was done. And um, I had also broken my toe in Kiss Me Kate and never let it heal. So I just needed a second so that I could um, run and in, in, in everything. But uh, they gave me two weeks off and I started back at the Lion King, I think like July 14th or something like that. Wow. Wow. And did it feel, feel crazy getting back into Lion King again? It yeah, felt at that, at that time. It felt good. Um, it felt really good. But then 
after a few shows, the old aches came back. Yeah. It's so crazy. It's like, I was like, Ooh, I feel like a new woman. And then like by Sunday, I'm like, Oh my God, my knees, you know? So it's interesting how that all happens. I don't know if it's mental or if it really is physical, but um, we'll see what happens when we all go back to work. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Now, when it comes to the roles that you audition for, what is it that that attracts you to a particular show or role? I, you know, I've auditioned for quite a few, not so much shows that are already running. Like I've auditioned for just a couple of shows that are already running. And then I've auditioned for, you know, workshops of shows. And I'm really not one to say no. Like I'll pretty much say yes to just about everything, at least if it's an audition. And um, I think what attracts me the most is when I love the music. Like I've auditioned for a few things where I immediately fall in love with the music. And I know that I love the music if I can learn it quickly. And if I'm singing it weeks after the right. audition, then I'm like, oh yeah, I, ooh, I remember that. That was fun. That was great. You know, so that really attracts me to auditions. I've also gone in for stuff that I don't so much believe in, but I think you know, I'm not a writer. And so, you know, this is being produced. Someone believes in it. There's a vision. Maybe I just can't see it yet. Um, and it's always really fun to be called in for stuff that I'm not, uh, that I don't see myself in, you know, because that excites me. It means that someone sees me in, in a way that I haven't yet seen myself. And that means that if I were to book it and, and work in that show, then I would there would be some growth there because mm-hmm. I would be reaching into parts of myself I don't normally uh, give energy or time to. And this is something that in speaking with other people of color that I think someone like me, someone who's white, may not think about in that whenever I go into an audition, I'm thinking about the character, the scene, the song, whatever. And I'm not really thinking about my whiteness so to speak, bring it is for you is your, your blackness. Is that something that you feel like you bring into an audition? Is that something that you either need to highlight or diminish depending on the role? How does it feel to you going in and auditioning for different characters? I feel for me, it's always something I'm aware of. It's that's, it's never been anything I ever turn off. Being Black is something I'm always aware of, especially when I'm called in for a leading lady or for her best friend or something like that. I am curious why, because we haven't moved far enough in the casting process for that question to not come up. Hmm. Um, And so sometimes I feel like, okay, are they really considering someone that looks like me or are they just trying to make sure that they continue to call people of color in for all all uh, roles. And especially when I read copy that I can't identify with at all, you know, if they, (laughs) if there's a lyric in it talking about blue eyes or blonde hair, it's a little off putting to sing it. I'm like, are y'all going to change this? I know it's a revival, but you know, it's, (laughs) it's that, so that's a little uncomfortable, but uh, I don't know. I, I haven't, and I'm grateful for this since I moved to New York because I got my theater start in Chicago. But since I've moved to New York, I haven't had an experience in the casting room where someone has asked me, 
you know, for lack of a better phrase, to black it up or to mm. make make it look more, you know, people like to use the word urban or street or black, you know, but all black folks are different, you know? Right. So I know what people mean when they say that, but uh, it doesn't mean that I'm less offended just because I know what it means. And um, because it's still based, that question is based on a stereotype r- yeah. rather than taking Adrian for Adrian or someone else for themselves. It's like, no, we need you to be this black character that we all think about. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I don't really consider myself an Effie, meaning her voice. I'm not an Effie style singer. And I will say that that kind of has come into play throughout my career, that people see a black woman and they expect that that black woman can sing that style. And it's just not true. I'm a classically trained singer that can belt because I grew up in a black church and, you know, that was the first singing style that I did learn, but my voice really does um, mesh better with a vibrato sound and a, you know, a, a, a fully supported covered tone is more, you know, what I dig. That's more my, my thing. So yeah, I feel like that's still something we're working through. I don't I don't know when that will end. It's it's about what people have decided is true mm-hmm. and what actually is true. And and I think it's also going to take more more actresses like me that look like me to say, "Hey, you no, know, I can I actually sound like this. Can I try it this way?" You know. Yeah. Actually, my voice doesn't do that. And if I sing like that, I'm going to lose my voice. You know. So I think that that's important too, to speak up because we are where we are for a lot of different reasons, but one of those reasons is not feeling empowered to speak up. So if I've learned anything about the, you know, 2020 and everything that has transpired in 2020, it's that I need to speak up more. And I feel good about that. I feel really good about that. And this is just in my own experience. Um, I, I happen to be thinking about, I was talking with my husband, this was a couple of months ago, and we were talking about the casting process and how, you know, since I've been in New York, since 2008, I tried to think about the number of Black casting directors that have been behind the table. And I can't think of one. Mm-hmm. There's been, I, I, I remember there's been maybe a couple of Asians, uh, a couple of Latinos, but it's mostly been, it's mostly been women, but it's mostly been white. And I wonder if that is a part of that reason why we, why you're still asking yourself that question. Why me? Why is it because I'm black? It's because they want something specific. Yeah, it could be that. Um, I think part of it is just my personality and me working through my uh, insecurities and deficiencies. But I think also it is, um, you know, a paranoia that that I feel like people are trying to do the right thing and overcorrect. And in their overcorrection, they're not really seeing us <laughs> or seeing people in their, their whole selves. Because um, yes, I am black, but I, I, I'm also, I consider myself a, a certain type, you know, within the, the character spectrum. And so because of that, if I get called in for something and it doesn't really fit in with the type or what I, what I, how I see myself, it could mean, okay, great. This is a chance for me to grow, but it could also mean, and this is the paranoia setting in is that they don't see me and they're just trying to fill a quota 
Mm -hmm. And um, that definitely comes into the creative process for me when I'm trying to learn an audition, because in the back of my head, I have this question of, okay, well, why am I being called in for this? You know, what's going on here? Yeah, that definitely happens. Yeah, because when I had Michael Kilgore on, he he brought up the example of Oklahoma and you know, stage full of full of white people, and then there's this one black couple off to the side. And it's like, wait, what are they doing there? And how why is it that these two people are together? Why aren't that you know? So it's yeah, it it I can imagine that it would feel like okay, they're casting directors, they're just trying to placate they're trying to be this inclusive diverse company and so they add a, a sparkle of color and and then they're good yeah 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 a lot of times they call it uh the token you know right. the, and i know that that's gonna i hope it starts phasing out but i don't know it's so nuanced there's so much to it because i i, th- I think in general I think it's coming from a good place of trying to be like, okay, you know, we we're recognizing that, that a lot of these kinds of shows or, or this type of casting has been mostly white and they're trying to, but it can seem like they're, they're just trying to fill a quota rather than. Yeah. So I think there's going to be that transition of trying to overcorrect forward. It's going to feel like a quota until it eventually it's like, now everyone is kind of on the same playing field. Everyone is being considered equally and your, your skin color, they're not trying to fill up a, a black hole or a white hole or an Asian. They're just trying to get the right person for the right mix of people. And, and yeah, I, I think we'll eventually get there. And I think that is everyone's goal. It's just a matter of how we're going to achieve that. Yeah, I agree. And I feel also to that point that when they are trying to fill a quota, sometimes they miss casting the best person for the part. So it's like, well, I just want to see the best person for the part. Yeah, I do want to see some some diversity on stage, you know, we're craving that, but don't just fill a quota and then, you know, hire someone who's just passable and, you know, because that makes us all look bad, you know? It's like, well, see, this is why we don't hire you guys. It's like, that's how it feels, you know? <laughs> right, which is the horrible place to be. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Now, now, this is something that I found to be interesting. And um, on Disney+, Plus, they have, you know, all these different categories of movies. And one was called Black Voices. And so it's, it's you know, mostly Black cast of this movie or this, this animated show or whatever it is. And The Lion King was on there. And it got me thinking, I was like, why is Lion King considered a black show or a black voice? Yes, certainly on Broadway, it's a majority black cast. But like you said, I, I see the story and you're portraying animals, which aren't any color. So, and the story is universal. So do you see Lion King as being a, a black show or a black voices type of category? Hmm. I guess I've never really given it any thought. And if I go back to my young self that saw the movie in 1994, did I think of race at all? No. Did I say, oh, this movie is about me? No. Um, The movie is about Simba and Simba was voiced by a white actor. And so I I guess I didn't really, I didn't really see it that way. I think, um, you know, with the recasting of the film in the, 2019 production there is more diversity in the casting 
I think the only reason they might have said Black voices is because of its rooting in uh, in South African culture and the music. Mm-hmm. But that that's probably I don't know. I I I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I, I see a lot of that in the the streaming networks. You know, Netflix has their their uh, level of their e- equivalent to Black Voices. I don't know what they call it. The same for Amazon Prime and Hulu. And I I get the importance of that, uh, but for some reason it kind of rubs me the wrong way. And I feel like it's because. Um, it's great to have a, a fast, quick way to discover these materials or find them or just, you know, skim through them. But it also is a nut, it feels like another iteration of white until proven otherwise. For me, if I'm searching for braiding styles, uh, if I go to Google and I'm like, ooh, you know, I, I need, I need a, some inspiration for my hair, you know, I want some braids, whatever. If I Google braid styles, I'm going to get a hundred thousand hits of white girls in braids. But if I Google black women braid styles, then I finally get what I want. And that's kind of what walking through this world feels like is just white until proven otherwise. You always have to have a little, you know, prefix to explain it. And then, you know, so I'm sure there's people that would disagree with me and that are just happy to see black voices up there as a category on these streaming services. I'm also happy to see it, but I'd be lying if I denied that I also feel these other feelings about it too. With every guest I bring on the podcast and the conversations we have, I pretty much learn something each time or or see something from a new perspective. But talking with Adrian was rather eye-opening. What she said about white until proven otherwise really struck me and drove home the point that none of us should really have a default setting with how we relate or communicate with other people. It can be too easy to know one, maybe two things about another person and from that little information extrapolate an entire personality and personhood upon them. If we focus too much on this group or that group, then we can lose sight of the individuals that comprise these various communities. And that's one of the biggest things I love about this podcast, getting to sit down with individuals like Adrian and getting to know them on a more personal, individual level. And we're certainly not done yet, so stay tuned for part two of our conversation where we talk about her weekly series called 32 Bar Cut. We also get into audition specifics and other favorite roles she's had on stage. Well, until then, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of all things producing this podcast. Music in the episode provided by John Bartman. Why I'll Never Make It is part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me and Adrian next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org, because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 